Welcome to MedHeads, the weekly show that brings a biopsychosocial focus to issues of the day, along with special guests who will showcase their expertise and enthusiasm about their field of practice. Your host, Dr. Fergal Armstrong. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong, and welcome to MedHeads. Today in the show, we have Marie Eisma, a mental health social worker, and we'll be talking about individual therapy. Hello, Marie, how are you? Hello, hello, thank you for having me. So Marie, we, we, we spoke previously about uh, what group therapy is. I suppose it's now the turn of individual therapies. What are individual therapies for AOD? Um, there's various ones. I mean, a lot of the, uh, the research suggests using things like um, cognitive behavioral therapy, um, acceptance and commitment therapy, um, behavioral interventions. Um, so there's a range out there. Some yeah. people are very big lovers of even like solution focused therapy. Um, but there's, there's a whole range of different ways that we can approach um, substance abuse. And I suppose individual therapy by definition is defined as a one-on-one -on -one process between a patient and a therapist or a, or a counsellor. Yes, absolutely. That's yeah. true. So do you find that, that patients or, or, or clients come often with relatives or with carers or with loved ones? And how do you handle that dynamic? My experience has been that it's usually the family members who are wanting to seek support first. Oh, no, they're wanting to know how to work with their uh, family member who is using substances. Um, mm. So sometimes that can be a nice segue um, to getting uh, somebody maybe with a um, who is actually using substances as a way of getting them into treatment. Um, but it, it really depends. I think a lot of it is um, trying to pace uh, there's nothing worse than um, somebody, you know, possibly thinking about individual counselling, um, but then feeling like they've uh, been character assassinated in the process, especially if family members have, um, you know, eventually got somebody in and then they just use that as a, as a stage to um, launch at someone. I think, with, you know, sometimes I'm really clear about before bringing people together what the expectations of that might look like in a, in a, in a um, clinical setting. Mm. So what you're saying is that sometimes loved ones, family members can actually be more of a hindrance to, uh, to recovery in the situation of individual therapy for a patient. Sometimes it, it, it depends about the robustness of the person who, um, you know, if someone's going in and they're getting, um, you know, getting uh, verbally attacked by their loved ones and then they're using that as an opportunity to, to vent all their their disappointments and all their rage that they've experienced. Um, mm. What I've noticed is it, it can tend to just put the person back on the defence um, or it can make them just go, oh, well, screw it and just become more rebellious again. Uh, yeah. it, so it's a lot to do with, I think a lot of it's timing. I think a lot of it's where somebody is mentally, uh, how much they want to change and how much they can give themselves, uh, I don't know whether you use the word permission, but whether they can hold the space for themselves that they may have made choices that, may not have been in alignment with what everyone else wanted and they may not have foreseen the consequences of what they were doing at that time and didn't see it, hmm. the impact of that so many years or months down the track. So how do you tell a loved one that really their presence is no longer welcome in the room? And, and also, 
I mean, I suppose, is there, is there ever a situation when you're asked to take sides? And how do you deal with that? I try to, when I'm working with uh, families or anything in regards to substance abuse, if, if, if that, I, I kind of hold, hold the space that I'm thinking about the individual <clears> as part of a bigger system. And I'm holding the space that the relationship is part of what it's generally um, ideal if the family members, they're in there because they most likely want their person to not be using substances anymore. And I'm mm. always working around where are the values? Like if, if the person, what is, it that's, what is it that's bringing the person who's using substances to a point that they're, they might be now seriously considering about change and really honouring that? And I sometimes really have to kind of say, look, uh, uh, you know, what are the common goals? What are we all bringing here? What are we, what are we coming together for? If, and then if someone runs with the agenda where they want to start, you know, jumping into a tirade of why they're annoyed with their loved one, I might say, look, yeah. there's, there's going to be a time and place to really work through that. But where's our wiggle room? Where is our capacity just to, you know, and really, as I said, come back to the goals. It's, we can't do any of that stuff if we can't even have the person in the room to stay in the room um, to yeah. be able to help them get to a, to be a place or to be in a place where they might be a candidate for seeing the benefits of possibly changing. And do you get asked often to take sides? I think everyone wants to have their day in court. I, I see many a times where, you know, somebody's wanting to communicate that they've had their funds depleted from their, say, their marital bank account. I've seen, uh, you know, if someone's been unfaithful in the relationship, they want to really, you know, vent their spleen about that. Um, you know, so I think it's it's that it's a it's it's where we use we really need to have a really good use of our own skills and hold the person's hurt at the same time as you know uh, trying to explain the way people's judgment is impaired and a lot of it is as I said in previous um, discussions it's it's psychoeducation and yeah. there's a time and place I guess for you know for the couples work and and family work but you know it's yeah. really around how do we bring the person in. Yeah, yeah. So that one-on-one -on -one time is so valuable to actually start doing some work with the, with the client, with the patient. So you've mentioned um, previously, you've mentioned CBT, acceptance therapy, and various types of behavioral therapies. I mean, maybe we could go through what each of those means. So, so in, in your words, what, how would you define CBT? So we, when we grow up, we often have um, different core beliefs. We have uh, what's also referred to as schemas. They're sometimes the ways in which we make sense of our world. So they can sometimes cause some really big blind spots for people. So if people have got certain really core beliefs, um, usually they're ones of things around effectiveness. So um, what I should say is I'm, I'm also trained in transactional analysis and there's some um, don't messages that exist in transactional analysis that I think were further developed or is, you know, certainly run alongside um, when we're using CBT. So if people have grown up with messages such as, you know, don't exist, don't be a child, don't be you, um, don't, be, don't grow up too fast, um, don't take risks. There's a whole range of don't messages that children will take on from their experiences with families or significant others. So those don't messages in transactional analysis don't really give us a, a, a segue onto how to live. They just tell us what not to do. So we can often go mm. into 
uh, compensatory behaviours or things that we believe will will get us points from the people that uh, who we think are meant to love us. So mm. there might be things like you know being strong or be perfect or trying hard, um, pleasing people. So there's a range of different ones that exist. But when we're looking at like a CBT approach, we're looking at the core beliefs beliefs of I'm unlovable, I'm not good enough. Um, there's a whole range of them that basically run the show. And what tends to happen is through our filtering system and through our experiences of interacting with other people, those beliefs get triggered. Um, even in a, in a situation that somebody may not get triggered, like um, somebody, there could be five or six people in the same situation, but only one or two of them get triggered in that same, mm. in that same situation. So again, that's kind of the way I explain it is it's kind of like, people are wearing a set of glasses and it's like that's the lens that they see the world through. And mm. no matter what tends to happen, there's this kind of feedback loop in the back of their mind because that's how they see their world. And often it's very fixed and often it's mm. very, it's just taken for granted and people don't realise that it's running the show so much for them. And then you can often see there's a constant theme when we when we break down where the conflicts constantly happen with friends or when there's some there constantly seems to be these uproars with people or where they feel really uh wobbly or they feel like they're they're being triggered you can usually find out that it's one of these core beliefs that's constantly uh playing out behind the scenes so what you're saying is then that as we grow up these don't statements set up the negative cognitions in adulthood which then generate the triggers to then fall apart. Is, is that what I'm hearing? Yes, in, in, right. the, in the best way, yes, that's exactly right. So they really <laughs> become these templates for, for how somebody makes, their, makes sense of their world. Right, so, so we, we've, we've honed in on the, the, the don't statements, like don't take risks, don't misbehave. Can you clarify just a few more of the negative cognitions that act as the foundation for being triggered? You know, I mean, you've mentioned uh, you're no good, but can, can, you, can you talk a bit more about what those cognitions are? Yeah, so people have cognitions around things like, um, you know, ne uh, if I'm not strong, that I'm not okay. If, um, you know, I'm flawed, I'm defective, I'm without, I'm lacking. Um, I'm not deserving. So there's a, there's a whole range of them that, that are, are there. And, and sometimes we can have more than one, which is, you know, <laughs> which can make, you know, it can make life really hard for people. You know, it, makes, right. it can lead so to a how, lot of suffering. What, what, what difficulties would people experience then as a result of these negative cognitions? So let's take a well, negative okay. cognition, I'm not worthy. How would that manifest itself? How would that make my life difficult? Oh, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy could mean uh, you don't, you know, challenge yourself. I'm not worthy could be if you don't get a position or you might not even apply for a position because if your statement is, or if your beliefs or belief system is I'm not worthy, well, why would anyone want to employ somebody who isn't uh, in their mind uh, worthy? Um, it can lead to, you know, <clears throat> treacherous relationships of, you know, if someone's running with an I'm not worthy uh, script. It, it's, it's, they can when set themselves up for... When you say treacherous oh, relationships, what does that mean? Vulnerable for, uh, vulnerable for violence, vulnerable mm. for 
attracting, you know, less than desirable people who certainly won't mm. enhance your world. Um, mm. So if someone's not worthy, you know, it's quite possible that somebody may um, unconsciously seek out somebody who will give them every reason to believe that they're not worthy. <laughs> so that, that negative cognition of unworthiness is almost like a magnet that attracts negativity into your life by various conduits. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, if somebody believes that they're unworthy of um, being happy or unworthy mm. of having a, a safe and um, a safe home or mm. unworthy of being loved or being vulnerable or any of that sort of stuff, then that will have that will have major implications for relationships. And it, it can really be a, because the more somebody feels unworthy, sometimes the more that they'll overcompensate. And then before you know it, what they thought they would start off tolerating in a relationship has all of a sudden become so far removed from what they're actually experiencing. Okay, so how does that unworthiness translate into the descent into substance use disorder? Can you, can you draw me a picture for that? Yeah, so if feelings of unworthiness are there, so my experience of people who are using, uh, you know, have got addiction issues can be, if there's, a, if there's a playing out of a recording in the back of the mind of not being worthy, sometimes the substance experience of using substances, so say for argument's sake, an adolescent just experiments with, uh, with a substance and all of a sudden, while they're drunk or while they're um, affected by cannabis or while they're using ice, that the, the, the rhetoric of the unworthiness won't be playing, may momentarily leave their mind. So they might be able to finally feel like they're part of a social tribe with everyone else who might be dabbling as well. For once, mm. their feelings of not being worthy may go to the background and they're able to experience a time and place where that the screaming of that um, unworthiness isn't there in the forefront of their psyche. So it gives them a reprieve. And mm. in that reprieve, it's like, ah, that's what it actually feels like to not mm. be experiencing this, what I call a poisoned parrot. So a lot of our, a lot of our, like the unworthiness might be literally like a poisoned parrot just jabbering away going, oh, you see, you, you're useless, you're not good, you suck at this, you're terrible at that. Um, and then for a moment, there's this respite, there's this sanctuary of it not happening. And it can feel pretty damn relieving. <laughs> Yes. And of course, people will seek pleasure and avoid pain, and it doesn't take long before that becomes the association. So we have the cognition of unworthiness, and then we've got the behavior of drug taking. Is that yeah. the cognitive behavioral element in CBT? Is that, is that the foundation? Yeah, so when we start to look at our belief systems and what's happening and when we get triggered, so for somebody who you know, has that moment of feeling unworthy, they then just have a, a screaming blue with their partner because the partner's gone off and said something horrible about them. Of course, that cycles back to the belief that they really are actually unworthy. Um, mm. They don't like that feeling of unworthiness. They can't stand, they can't tolerate the distress. So the first thing is, I can't cope with this. This is just, the you know, this is like a fate worse than death. Right, how can I, how can I just momentarily escape um, yeah. my... The, the, my, my true belief about me is now being confirmed and I hate it. Right, right. And so, so they really want relief from that, the enormity of what that feels like. 
So what you've described is, the, is almost the descent into substance use, where we have the negative cognition leading to a behavior which really represents a maladaptive coping strategy to deal with the negative emotions associated with that negative cognition. Mm. How do you, and therein lies the, the vicious circle, how as a therapist engaging in CBT, do you break that vicious circle and begin to start creating the virtuous circle of, 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 of injecting positivity into that relationship? What, what happens in CBT? Where's the magic so of CBT? So the magic is um, in, inviting clients, I guess, to expand and look for where the evidence is, uh, looking for where, you know, is that a, a belief that is absolutely true 100% of the time? So that person might experience feelings of unworthiness that's reinforced in a relationship, but perhaps when that person goes to do reading circle with their child at school or they might be able to account a time where they were so highly regarded in year 12 that they were sought to do SRC or uh, some other high role. And we would be kind of placing the, the, two, the two realms of that and sort of saying, well, I'm, I'm a bit confused. You know, on one level, there's, there's these really strong feelings of, you know, unworthiness. And yet, historically, when we track your story, we see that there's many examples of where uh, you may have experienced feelings of being quite worthy and maybe there was a time where you were able to assert yourself and then we might be able to get them to go back to that feeling or go back to that experience and what happened from that. Well, you know, the bullies at school left me alone or um, I was able to be recognised as, as um, having a, an opinion that people thought was worthy of listening to if someone was an SRC, for example. So how would you, let, let's, let's bring this up to, to a, a substance. So let's talk about alcohol use disorder, for instance. How do you bring that to someone with an alcohol use problem who's drinking maybe you know, 15, 20 pints a day? What's, what's the cognition, what's the behavioral intervention there? So, so I'm one a businessman, things... I just lost my job, mm -hmm. 15 pints a day. What, what, what do you do for me? So the things that I would be looking at is the beliefs around, well, what does it mean to, what does, you know, what does a loss of employment mean? Okay, so if it means that, um, see, it's proof that I'm a fraud, it's proof mm. that I'm, I can't get anything right, or I'll never be able to, um, you know, be able to get back into work, or, mm. um, you know, those, those things would be the things that I'm sort of working on and really, really helping to understand the more that, the, how how is that how is that mindset? Uh, what's the impact? What's the consequences of that mindset? Um, is there examples where perhaps there's other people who you know we sometimes if we even look at um, millionaires they've they've gone from having lots of everything to lots of nothing and they've they've been able to kind of bounce back. Um, mm. So we'd be looking for examples where okay so what 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 was able to happen for those people that might be able to shine some light for where to for you so it's really around okay so somebody loses a job but what's the what's the meaning what's the what does that stir up for that person what belief systems get bought in to the to the loss of employment and what what does that mean to their sense of self and then that again we'll be starting to understand the the core beliefs and the the self statements that are going on in that right. So 
Let's compare that now with acceptance and commitment therapy. That's, that was one of the other major therapies that you identified in, in individual therapies. Mm. What, how would you define that? And then we'll move on to the differences between uh, acceptance therapy and CBT. So how would you define firstly acceptance and commitment therapy? Okay, so with, um, with CBT, there's more of a, a focus on sort of challenging some of our cognitions. Yeah. Acceptance and commitment therapy is more about acknowledging that we have these, I call it internal chatter. We have these, uh, the ways in which our brains just have a little, a little talk. Yeah. And sometimes the conversations can be quite loud and other times they can just be, you know, using some of the, the, the phrases of um, acceptance commi commitment therapy therapy can be things like you know bad news radio you know many a times we might be driving along in a car and we hear music coming from a neighboring car or we might walk into a room and someone's got some hideous ghastly music or you know talk back or something that you just can't stand and it's basically about changing the relationship so if our thinking or if our thoughts were one that was equal to a really bad set of music we don't have to sit in the same room as mm. that dreadful music, we can let it play in the background so that it it's not in our kind of field of vision, um, you know, really stirring us up. We can just kind of uh, disconnect from it and not let it run the, run the show. Mm. So acceptance and commitment therapy is more around, it, it, we, um, there is some research to say that we are wired to have a negativity bias before we will lead towards a positive. Um, there seems to be a you know a bit of research around that so before we can you know sometimes we might make up and go oh you know i've got this day ahead of me um that might be our initial impression but then the more that we just kind of sit with that we might just then go oh okay well it's just that's just a thought move it through and then before you know it we're moving on to something else which is most likely going to generate a different reaction um so essentially if we know that we're going to have those tens those kinds of thoughts because that's what we will have as humans our survival has hinged on that, um, then well, we just might as well accept that it's make. there. You, our survival has hinged on what you said? Our, our, our wiring, I mean, you know, we know that we've got a, a, a brain that's wired, um, as I said before, to seek pleasure and avoid pain. We know yeah. that we've got amygdalas. We know that, you know, years ago, we were our survival hinged on on being able to hunt and gather food we were wired to be racing around with you know tigers and all matter of things that could kill us uh, we don't have those same um, barriers now because essentially we don't have to go off and and fight to to get even our food uh, so now even though that's that's that even from an evolutionary perspective that part hasn't left us but we're still uh, wired to be on the lookout for harm or on the lookout for things that could cause us to not survive. So vigilance and hypervigilance, is that what you're alluding to? Yeah, definitely. We've got right. that. Okay. So what I'm hearing from you basically is that um, CBT is all about challenging the veracity of a particular cognition. Yes. Whereas acceptance therapy is about accepting a particular cognition and moving and effectively ignoring it and moving on is, is that right it's just it, it is essentially acknowledging that it's there and then yeah. electing to unhook from it so 
you know, if the, if someone's got a thought that says something like, um, so how I how I tend to use things like this could be somebody has a, a, a thought of um, I'm useless, I'm not good enough, and I might say to somebody, look, can you just note, can you put the statement I notice in front of that I'm useless, I'm not good enough. So what we would get a client to do would be something like. Um, I notice I'm, I've got the belief that I'm not good enough. I notice I, I don't think I'm worthy, whatever it might be. And I get them to take a breath. Mm. And we know the importance of the breathing. We know the parasympathetic, the sympathetic nervous system. We know that even just taking three long, slow, deep breaths changes our physiology from being revved up and, and highly distressed or, or emotionally charged to slowing down and bringing um, different parts of our brain into into interaction and into having a space of changing what we might do. So I might say to a client, yeah, okay, so just take the breath. And then I might ask them to say, you know, is it, it's okay that I'm having this thought or this belief because it is simply just a thought. Uh, there was a, I was doing some reading on EMDR and how it sits with pain. And the psychologist uh, wrote that we have up to around 70,000 thoughts per day. Well, there's a high probability that those 70,000 thoughts per day are not necessarily uh, going to be ones of, you know, gorgeous walks down the botanical gardens. So yeah. if we know that we've got these, these thoughts that can be pesky, then it's about us unhooking from them and then not getting into the ruminations of them, which tend to cause us the greatest amount of distress. So if we can unhook from the thinking... We, we, we don't, we, the difference is we don't, we don't look for proof. We don't look for evidence. We don't challenge it. We just simply go, is me having this thought at this moment helpful or useful? And usually when we're dealing with thoughts that are troublesome, that cause us distress, nine times out of 10, they are unhelpful and they are mm. unuseful. So the goal then becomes about not hooking into them. How does that then translate? into helping someone with a use disorder? If someone can get off the ruminations, and I, I may have touched on this in a previous one, a, a previous discussion about, you know, the example I use is if we think about a, a brain, like if we, looked at Mel, if we looked at the Melbourne's Metropolitan Railway and then we were sitting up in a plane, we'd see that the trains are going, you know, all around. We've got everything coming mm. from the east, west, northern suburbs. Yeah. When we get caught up in ruminations of or fixations on uh, the negative story, wanting to get away from that horrible feeling that the, we then want to go off and use, and then we just end up in this cycle roundabout of feeling despairing and, and the very predictable behaviour that comes from the moment we get caught up in the, in the roundabout, well, then if we're not... If we're changing our relationship to those ruminations and those despairing thoughts or those judgments or those harsh critical aspects of our own commentary, and if we choose not to be connecting with them, then there's a high probability that we will go off and do something else mm. rather than get investing in the, in the deliberation about the thinking. So Does I suppose you can, only have, you can only have one thought at a time. And if you choose not to have a bad thought, then you have to have a good thought. And that good or you at least get then, one that's neutral. Or a, a neutral thought. And then that then mm. moves away from the direction of using a drug. Is that, is that what you're saying? That's correct. The, re, the directional flow changes because if yeah. someone is getting caught up in the, in the I'm, I'm terrible, I'm not good enough mm. story, then the yeah. more airtime that they then give that thought, yeah. 
then the more chances are that they're going to then look for the proof that, yes, yeah. I am terrible, I am not good enough, I can't stand this. And you can see the, the cascading or the, yeah. um, the, the cascading and how it kind of pulls someone down into the slopes of, well, I, I'll just, I can't stand how I feel. Whereas if yeah. we just disconnect it and don't buy into it, then the brain the brain's not really given the airtime to deliberate and, and have further it's like looking through for you know a pair of binoculars for all the proof. If we don't even sit and, and entertain or dance with mm -hmm. the the belief, then it's almost like we're turning the channel off of the TV. We're not gonna be we're not gonna be indulging in it any further. Right. So just finally, because we're we're running out of time. Are, the, are CBT and acceptance therapy, are they mutually exclusive in, in, for use in one individual? Well, uh, some, people, some people don't like CBT because of, you know, sometimes there's a, a homework a, a assigned as part of that process and some people are like, oh, I don't want to do another thing. Um, some people... Some people struggle to get cognitive, you know, some people don't really understand their cognitions. They've, they've been so busy simply living their life that to actually put the, put, to shine a light on their cognitions, um, they, they don't get it. I've seen people literally kind of gloss over when they, they really don't sort of understand it or they, they seem to look at it as, as it's, they're so caught up in the behaviours that they're not even stopping to really think about what's going on uh, with their cognitions that might be leading to it. Um, right. So, so is, some is people... acceptance therapy easier than CBT for patients, do you think? I, I really personally think, I, look, I, my personal approach to, to counselling, and I've, I've said, I say this with my clients many a times, it's around saying that we have different options about what, what's on offer. You know, I think people, when they go to a bistro or they go to a, they go out for dinner, people like to be able to look at a menu and actually choose. Yeah. My personal approach, not everyone will agree with this, uh, but my personal approach is I try to understand the way that a person makes sense of their world. I've, I've alluded before that I look at the person's multiple intelligences and I then try to think how can I best join them somewhere in the middle to uh, find a way that works well for them. So if, if they look like they're highly logical, perhaps very highly mathematical in their approach, well, then CBT might be really a really good approach for them. Um, there's other people that don't like the, what they feel is robotical. They, they find that there's no difference to banging something into a computer and then feeling like it's going to calculate what you need to calculate. Um, so some people feel that it's quite a, I don't know, dehumanised I don't know if that's, that's the word that people have used for, before for me. Um, right. So, well, yeah, I don't, Marie, I don't know that I'd say that they're different. Thank you, Marie, for your insights. And thank for those you. of you watching at home, that's all we've got time for today on MedHeads. But I look forward to your joining us again soon.